All right. Turn with me. Um, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. I, I'm going to catch up. Last week, Dan took you to the next patriarch, Moses. And, and Dan did really, really well. He took care of Moses. He preached about the first 80 years of Moses' life in one sermon. That's a lot better than I do. I get consumed sometimes in five minutes of somebody's life, but we have to do that with the patriarchs because there's so much stuff there, right? So Dan took you up through the first 80 years of his life and, and how Moses grew up in the court of Pharaoh, how he went out into the desert and there in the desert at the base of Mount Sinai, he saw a bush that was burning, but it was not being consumed, Right? And he went to that bush, and as he got there, what happened? He got to the bush. God said, oh, before he said that, he said, stop. Don't come any closer. You're not ready to be in my presence. Take off your shoes. Take off my boots. You're on holy ground. Why would God tell Moses to take off his shoes? Okay, so it was a cleaning. Number one, it was a cleaning article. It was to, to clean that. But there's, there's several other reasons. Number one, it's so that nothing would be between Moses and the holy. Woo! Nothing between us and the holy. Some things in our life, it's important for us to take off before we try to walk into the presence of God. Some things may be all right to use, but when we come into the presence of God, it may be that we have to strip ourselves of those things so that we can feel the presence of God. That's part of what this prayer and fasting time is. Starting next Friday is, is we come in here and we kind of peel off the things and I'm not talking about we take off our clothes. Of course, I don't have any shoes on while I'm in here, I'll tell you that. But, but we, we, actually, we actually devoid ourselves of the things that would distract us. We don't go on to normal web pages and look at stuff. Sometimes we'll post something that God has given us so that it can touch somebody else's life. Sometimes we'll read the scripture from our Word. Sometimes we'll listen to music from the Word. Sometimes we will download a video of God, where God has poured out His Spirit or revival upon the nation or upon some group of people. But we devoid ourselves of the things that would distract. Hello. Sometimes it's time to take our sandals off. We're on holy ground. Well... This experience was one in which God spoke to Moses' heart. And remember, he revealed himself 
as Yahweh, the I am. Y'all ever thought about that? Did you deal with that a little bit, Dan? The I am. Jesus didn't say the I was, or God didn't say I am the I was. He didn't even say he am the I will be. I am the I will be. No, he is the I am. And the I am is present tense, which means that no matter which time you go to, he is. With you, if you want to go back to the very foundation of the world and before, guess what? The I am is there. If you want to go to 25 years from now, some of you may be on your deathbed. Guess what? The I am will be there. He is there. There is no time limitation, nor is there any space limitation. I am does not have any limits on its scope. Wherever, whenever, however, the I am is. So the revelation of God was was something that just Moses did not come. He had been trained in in, uh, Hebrew understanding. He had been taught who Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were. But as far as having an intimate personal relationship with God, until the burning bush, we don't find Moses having that relationship. He was 80. Don't wait till 80. But if you are 80, he can do it. And there at the bush, God revealed himself. He declared himself to be the I am. He gave him a job. Moses went back to do it and then proceeded to lead the children out of Israel. He talked to you last time about the communion and how it was derived from the Passover and how Jesus then performed that communion for his disciples and told us to as often as we do it. We don't look back to Passover, but we look back to him because he completed Passover. He became the perfect lamb for the sacrifice for all of our sins. Well, Moses takes these people up to the Red Sea and they get there and there's no other way. And God said, I'm going to take care of this. And he sent a wind. And you remember, he piled up the waters on either side and they walked through not on soggy ground, on dry ground. What a God we serve. You can walk through on dry ground, something that has been covered up with water for many, many years. And some of the some of the people who are atheists and they try to talk about that, they say, well, even if he did, it was a real shallow spot and it didn't take much to to push that water back. And then I go, Woohoo! What you screaming about now? Well, that God could walk them through something that wasn't very much and get them 1.5 million people over to dry land and then turn around and drown Pharaoh and his army in two inches of water. That's a miracle. You see what I'm saying? My God does miracles. And it doesn't matter if the water was 10 feet deep or 2,000 feet deep. He did what he said. He took them through on dry ground. And then he erased Pharaoh and his army by allowing the waters to come back and overcome them. 
And then, from the time they left Egypt until the time they got back to where Moses got the message. Oh, by the way. In the story that took place, God did not tell Moses where he was going to take the children of Israel. You ever got in a car and said, come on, let's go. Where are we going? I don't know. Sometimes God says, go. I'll give you directions later. Sometimes it's a frightening prospect. But here's what Moses knew. When God spoke to him at the mount, he promised him he would bring him back to the mount. And so it wasn't necessary for Moses to seek God's face on directions because he knew he had to go back to the mountain again. Y'all realize that where you met God, sometimes you need to go back there. Revisit the site. Say, hey God. You remember? Oh, yeah, I remember. Do you remember? I'm beginning to. And then God's like, uh, have I been faithful since I... Yeah. And then you begin to ask the question of yourself. Have I been faithful since we... Maybe I need to repent again. Maybe I need to ask for your... Help. Maybe I need to ask for your power. Hmm. Just a thought. Let's go to the map. Let me show you just a little bit about what goes on. You see up there in the Nile Delta is where they were up in the land of Goshen. The very fertile area where the Nile spreads out and under, in between there there's flooding. And so the grass grows really good and... And uh, cattle and sheep are able to be raised. And this is the beautiful thing about it. The children of Israel were shepherds. They were nomadic shepherds. And in Egypt, it was considered um, beneath Egyptians to raise sheep and herds. So when God moved them in, he just gave them the land that was so good for their herds and their sheep. And they went in and they raised food for themselves and for the Egyptians. They came all the way down this peninsula. And while they were coming down this peninsula back to Mount Sinai. Sinai, uh, You see where it says traditional route of Exodus? That's Saudi Arabia. Okay? Today. That's Saudi Arabia. That was the land of Midian. That was where Moses' father-in-law was from. We don't know where he lived in that area. But somewhere in that general area. As a matter of fact, back then... Midian actually probably entered into on the west bank a little bit of the of this right hand leg where the Red Sea is, where they crossed up through there now is the Suez Canal. It's it's a thousand feet wide, uh, 120 feet deep, I believe, in the center and will 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 allow ships to go through there and pass. Matter of fact, some of you have been through there, right, Edwin? You've been through the Suez Canal? Yep, I thought so. Maybe some of the rest of you too. But they came all the way down here. And when they came down, remember they didn't have much food. And what did God do? They complained and he said, I'm going to give you manna. And, and they said, well, the bread's not enough. 
He said, oh, I'm going to give you quail. And even then, some of them were longing for the onions of their land of Egypt. Daily, daily miracles that God did for them. When they got to a place called Mara, the water was bitter. And uh, Moses struck the rock and the water was made sweet again. Right? Amalek. Here, these people were slaves. There were no soldiers. And, and this king, the Amalekites... Uh, came in on them to destroy them. And Moses said to Joshua, go get the army together. What army? No, get, get the men of fighting age together. I need you to go do this. And God says this, the battle's mine. <laughs> Isn't that great? To know the battle is the Lord's. When we're walking in the place that he's asking us to walk, the battle is always his. When we get deviated from his path, it's our battle. That's the reason some of you have struggled so desperately. Because you need a course correction. Thank you, Bob. I was hoping somebody would say amen on that one. It is true. When we get in overwhelmed and beyond our ability to, to deal with the situation... We try to fight our own battles and we lose and we get destroyed and we get hurt. And there are dozens of representations throughout scripture of this. But in this case, God says, stand still. I got it. And remember, Moses and Ur and Aaron went up on top of the hill. And while Joshua got these slaves together who had never fought a battle in their life and they started to do battle, Moses up on top of the hill stretched forth his arms and when he did, they would win. Man, they would slaughter the Midianites and he'd get tired and he'd put his arms down and all of a sudden the Midianites would overtake him again. And he began to realize, hey, there's a direct correlation to me lifting up my arms and us winning. I got to keep my arms up. There could be a sermon in here somewhere. There's a direct correlation to us lifting our arms in praise, our voices in praise, our hands in praise, in thanksgiving for life. And when we stop it, guess what? We start losing the battle up here. Yeah. And you know what? Moses got so tired... I mean, the guy's 80 years old. Don't know what I'm talking about? There's only a certain amount of time that you as an 80-year-old can hold up your arms. I'm right behind you, folks. And Moses said, I need help. Oh, there's a story here, too. He had Ur come on one side and Aaron come up on the other. And they just held his hands up until the battle was taken care of by God. Set old Moses down on a rock. Let the 80 year old man relax a little bit. And the 70 year old man hold his arm up. Because that's about how old Aaron was. And then back... 
to the mountain of God. In, in the first time that Moses went to this mountain, the mountain was called Horeb. The second time, it's called Sinai. It is the same mountain. Horeb is the eastern side. Sinai is the western side. They come together. It forms the same mountain. It's just that those who were looking on this side called it Horeb. And those who were looking at that side called it Sinai. So they come back. They encamp. 1.5 million people camped out in the desert of sin. Down here below Mount Sinai. And there those 1.5 million people were waiting for God to speak. You ever find it difficult to just wait for God to say what He's going to say? Well, I, I probably should be doing something while I'm waiting. I probably should be trying to accomplish something. And, and instead of waiting with, with our ears listening and our hearts listening, we get preoccupied in doing good stuff. But it's not what's intended for that moment. God has another plan. Sometimes He just wants us to be still and know that I am God. So they got in there and they let Moses go back and talk to God. Now, I don't know all that Moses said, but I can imagine he went back up to God because he had done what God had said. And he probably said to God, hey, I did it. Now, where do we go? I got a bunch of people down here who have followed me so far, but I need you to talk to them. You know, let's go. Now, he probably didn't do it quite that frivolously he probably but I think that probably was the intent of his heart Lord you have to reveal yourself to these people I don't have the strength they are not going to follow me unless you speak it won't make any difference you you understand that we preach I mean we pray that every Sunday Lord, if I go forward before them and I say something that I want to say, and if I do something that I feel like is good, they won't hear me. Oh, but if you will come and make this ground holy, then it won't be just the preacher, the hillbilly who takes his shoes off, but the people who are there will recognize this is a holy place and off come the shoes and down go the faces in adoration to our God. And then God, Moses goes up to talk to God and Moses hears what God has to say. God speaks the covenant. You remember the words of the covenant? Those of you that were here Wednesday night, if... I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I picked you up on eagle's wings and took you from where you were to where you are right now. If you will obey me. That's, that's an offensive word to most of our nation today. Do you know how many married couples refuse to put the term obey in their ceremony. I mean I, I deal with. People all the time. I just don't want the word obey in there. 
We'll take it out. You want to take it out of that? You probably want to take it out of the word as well. However, when it comes time for preaching the sermon, I reserve the right to do that. And guess what I'm going to talk about? Submission, first of all, to the authority of God and then submiss- submitting to one another. Because this is what God said works. And so God told those people to obey. If you will do that, he said, I will choose you as my most favored nation. Now that's the words that we use today, but he basically said, I'm going to choose you to be the nation through which I reveal myself. Now he'd already done that through Abraham. He'd already done that through Isaac. He'd already done that through Israel. And he was again making the covenant with this people. When he said that, you know what the people did? They said, we, unanimously. You know how hard it is to get unanimous response? There's always somebody said, you know what? I agree with it, but I just don't want there to be 100%. I didn't, I had a, a church family that was voting on a pastor to return. And the pastor had given his soul, his life, his, his, he'd worked forever and he, and he'd been there for like eight years. And the P, I mean, he had sold himself out for the people. And when they took the vote, they had like 99 yeses and one no. And when they got talking about it, people were like, who voted no? And there's an old guy there and he's like, I did. What's, what's wrong? Why did you vote no? Oh, he said, I just couldn't stand to have 100%. Then leave. That's the best place for him. These people heard what God said. They knew what God was saying to them. If you will obey, I will accompany you. And they said unanimously, we will do everything God has said. You remember the day you said it? Hello? Y'all remember telling God, yeah, I'll do it. I'm in. Lock, stock, and barrel. I'm part of this. So each of them responded in that way. Now, did they obey? Did they unanimously respond after that in positive fashion? We're going to find out in a little bit, but the answer is no. They couldn't even make it nine months. They couldn't make it 45 days. Three months exactly after they left Egypt, God said, prepare. Just as he told Moses to take his shoes off, he told the people, go back and wash your clothes. Wash your bodies. Abstain from sexual intercourse. I want your mind right. I want your outside right. And I want your inside right. It's not inappropriate to get your clothes dirty. 
It's not inappropriate to get your body dirty. And it's not inappropriate to have sexual intercourse with your wife. All of those things are appropriate. But God said, prepare yourself because there's something I want you to begin to deny yourself so that you can hear what I have to say. We're going to start that this coming Friday again. You know, we've done it a couple, three times already. But this coming Friday, starting at noon, we're going to deny ourselves food. And ultimately sleep for some of us. Ultimately, we're going to deny ourselves television and we're going to deny ourselves the newspaper and we're going to deny ourselves all the other creature comforts and we're going to focus on what God is saying to us. And we're hoping in that that what happens there happens here, which is theophany. Theo meaning God. Ophany meaning revelation. God will reveal himself. And that's exactly after God spoke, they went back, they prepared themselves, they washed themselves, they began to pray, they set themselves apart. And then there was this revelation of God. The mountain began to tremble. Smoke like came out of a brick furnace, it says begin to roll off of that mountain because it says God descended in fire. Did you note that they did not see the fire? They saw the smoke. Sometimes when God reveals himself, we don't see him, but we see evidence of his presence. So this smoke was there. And then all of a sudden they heard a shofar, a ram's horn. At least that's what it sounded like coming from inside of the mountain. Moses wasn't blowing it. Joshua wasn't blowing it. Moses' father-in-law Jethro wasn't blowing it. It was being blown by the messengers of God. And it was one blast that started and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And Moses, as soon as it started, started taking people out toward the mountains. Like, come on, you're clean. Let's go to the mountain. But he said, here's what's going on in the preparation. You shall not touch the base of the mountain for the mountain is holy. You have to stand at the edge of the mountain. Well, they got so far and this horn blew and blew and blew and blew and all of a sudden... The mountain stopped rumbling. The horn stopped blowing. The smoke was just there. And Moses starts to walk forward. Do you know what the children of Israel did? They walked back. Let me tell you something about this. Something really important. The presence of God... Is not a place that if you've never been there will make you comfortable. But if you've ever enjoyed it and you've ever truly communed and had your heart and your mind and your spirit purified to be in his presence, you long to go back. It scared the people so bad. They didn't want anything to do with it. After it was all said and done, they told Moses, 
you go. You talk to God. We're going to stay here. Whatever he says, we're going to do it. But you go get the message. Bring it back to us. Because he may kill us. He may destroy us. This is something most people don't realize. The Ten Commandments were not put on the stones first and then revealed to the people. God actually spoke and everyone heard it. Stones were just a, were just a way to confirm this is what the Lord your God has said. Now they lived in an oral culture there wasn't a lot of writing. As a matter of fact, most of the people that were there could probably write very little. Moses definitely could. He had been trained in the courts of Pharaoh. God spoke them. And it transformed people's lives. Here's the foundation. This is what he says in Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2. God spoke all these words. All of them. I am the Lord, Yahweh, the I am. That's what that Lord means. Your God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Let me connect this so that you understand this. Go to the next slide, Ted. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the Shema. The Shema is the, the word that every Jewish uh, activity begins with. It is the governing principle of their relationship with God. The Lord our God is he is one. Let me put those two things together so that you have clarity of understanding. They knew that. The Lord, our God, He is one. So when He said, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, they recognized what the concept of God God was. They lived in a land of multiple gods. You live in a land of multiple gods. Now they aren't, they aren't all idols. They don't have big names like Krishna or Muhammad. Or Buddha. Sometimes they're a little bit more subtle. Sometimes they're power. Sometimes they're money. Sometimes they're control, manipulation. Sometimes they're freedom 
Ooh, pastor. Freedom? Yes, freedom. Because when we demand our freedom at the right or at the expense of someone else, including our relationship with God, it becomes a God. Matthew Henry said, anything that takes precedence in any way over God that you cherish, love, desire, embrace more than God, that thing has become for you an idol. God said to them, no other God before me. Now, what does that mean? The literal term there, if you look at it and, and translate it directly, it means in front of my face. But we don't recognize that as clearly in our language as the original language would have been to them. It literally meant that you would have nothing besides God. Matter of fact, he says, there is one God, capital G. Did you know that every other God is created? Every other God has been created. You just try to name one that hasn't been created. You can't do it. Because God has existed before the foundation of time. He existed with the Son and the Spirit as one. Everything else came from Him. Hmm. So nothing else achieves the status of God, capital G. He, there is one God. He alone is God. No other God exists as God. Now there are times in scripture where God speaks to the people and he uses the little g. And what he's talking about are those things that they're placing worship to. That they're worshiping, that they're giving place of preeminence or authority. And he tells them, get rid of your gods. But nothing is God. He alone is God. He is one deity. In other words, he's not God who also goes by Allah, who also goes by Buddha, who also goes by Constantine, who also goes by Flipper. He is Jehovah, the I am. There is nothing that even comes close to existing as he does. And it indicates to us that he must be number one in our lives. We live in a world that is very... Um, a lot of relativism, uh, relativism, which basically says there is no truth. 
except what we want to be. We live in a world where people say, you know what? What I believe is what I believe, and it's real for me. And I can let you believe whatever you want to believe, and you believe whatever you want to believe. And then pluralistically, we can agree that there's value in each one of our belief systems. But what this God does is says, there isn't. I am the I am. I am merciful. I extend grace to you. I extend mercy to you. But I also will come in judgment. And you cannot have a relationship with another God. And be with me in the place that I've prepared for you eternally. You also must recognize and acknowledge me as the God. God's a jealous God. Y'all understand that? Husband and wife. Now I'm talking I'm not talking about jealousy that places mistrust in every situation. But what I'm saying is he says, "Hold on. That's my wife. I alone have this relationship." God says to creation, I created you. You cannot have relationship with anything else, anyone else other than me. I am a jealous God. I have a place in my heart for you. You are the first of my creations as far as priority. I must be first in your life. There's one God. He alone is God. He is one deity. He must be number one. That's the only way he's going to handle it. There cannot be no other God before him. He must be given a place of preeminence and perfection in our life where nothing else interferes with that relationship. Is there anything in your life that you have or are prioritizing above your relationship with God, you better pull those sandals off. You better lay them down. It may be important. And I'm talking things like your family. I'm talking things like your job. Good stuff. Things that are okay to wear. But places of priority. Nothing should stand between you and this holy God. He wants the intimacy of life lived with you and in you. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And your spirit is testifying with my spirit this morning of that. But some of you are struggling with what it means to put God in that first place in your life. I want to tell you today that the only liberty, freedom, and joy you will ever truly experience is when you dethrone yourself and enthrone him first. We're going to talk about these Ten Commandments. I don't know how many we'll get to. I had quite a bit of preface today. 
Next time we're going to start with two and work our way through and, and we'll just deal with them as they come up. Read them. They're in Exodus chapter 20, um, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Even 6 have some good things that are in there. 5 and 6 have good things that work together to help you understand what they mean with that. You see, the law was given in three parts. There is a moral law. Right? There is a symbolic law which teaches us about the relationship with God. Such as temple practices. And then there was practical law. That helped them get along with other people. The moral law is the governing point. These are these Ten Commandments. The things that we take with us every day. Societies have been built with these ten principles. Including the United States. It's founding principles while we, they're never mentioned in direct correlation to the Ten Commandments, every one of the things that we put in our Constitution point back to concepts that are built on the, the two relationships that are talked about. The relationship with Him and the relationship with one another. And by the way, folks, Jesus did not abolish the Ten Commandments. He came to fulfill the law so that we may have greater understanding of the Father. It is still critical that we put Him first. There shall be, you shall have no other gods before me.